Welcome to this rebroadcast of a live radio forum held earlier today on the ongoing situation in Ukraine. Russia invaded Ukraine on the 24th of February. This was a dramatic escalation of a conflict that began in 2014. But the conflict between Ukraine and Russia goes back much farther than that. I'm Wayne Winkler, and I'll be moderating this panel discussion with three faculty members from East Tennessee State University. Dr. Henry Ankevich and Dr. Stephen Fritz from the Department of History, and Dr. Michelle Kremley from the Department of Political Science. They will provide an overview of the current events in Ukraine. We will begin the discussion right after news from NPR. Welcome to a radio forum on Ukraine. This program was recorded live this afternoon and is being rebroadcast this evening. I'm Wayne Winkler, and I'm joined by three ETSU professors who have some expertise in this area. We're going to hear from Dr. Henry Ankevich, a professor of history at East Tennessee State University with a specialty in Russian history and honorable visiting professor at North China University of Technology in Beijing, China. He received his Ph.D. from The Ohio State University and his M.A. and B.A. from the University of Michigan. He's been a recipient of the Kosciuszko Foundation Fellowship for a year of study at the University of Warsaw, Poland. He participated in the Council on International Education Exchange Seminar on Post-Communist Poland, Problems and Prospects at Warsaw Central School of Planning and Statistics, and he has attended conferences in the former Soviet Union and in Russia. His interests are state, ethnicity, and ideology in East Central and Eastern Europe. Also joining us will be Dr. Michelle Kremley, an associate professor in the Department of Political Science, International Affairs, and Public Administration, and she serves as the coordinator for the International Affairs major and minor at East Tennessee State University. Dr. Crumley earned her Ph.D. at the University of Connecticut, Master of Public and International Affairs from the University of Pittsburgh, and B.A. from the University of Tennessee. In the 1990s, Dr. Crumley interned at the Sociological Research Center in St. Petersburg, and she was awarded the APSIA Russian Foreign Ministry Exchange Scholar with MGIMO, Moscow State Institute of International Affairs. She led a study abroad course to St. Petersburg, Moscow, and Perm that focused on Russian NGOs and civil society in 2006. Dr. Crumley has presented conference papers and published on agricultural reforms and the state in the transition economies of Russia, Hungary, and Slovakia. And she is conducting research for a manuscript on Russian NGOs with a particular focus on human rights organizations and historical memory. Dr. Stephen G. Fritz joined the faculty of the Department of History at ETSU in the fall of 1984. His specialty is 19th and 20th century European history with a focus on 20th century Germany. His scholarship has ranged from liberal politics in the late 1920s Weimar Republic to the rise of Nazism, from the influenza epidemic of 1918 and 1919 in Germany to the origins of the Holocaust. He is the author of a trilogy of well-received books published by the University Press of Kentucky on various aspects of World War II. Among them was Ostkrieg, Hitler's War of Extermination in the East, which won the Brigadier General James L. Collins Jr. Book Prize in Military History, awarded by the United States Commission on Military History. 
His most recent book, The First Soldier, Hitler as Military Leader, published by Yale University Press, has been praised as perhaps the best account we have to date of Hitler's military leadership. It shows a scrupulous and imaginative historian at work and will cement Fritz's reputation as one of the leading historians of the military conflicts generated by Hitler's Germany. Very much for being with us today. And I'll start by asking what seems to be the problem between these two neighbors. They've been neighbors for a long time. Has this always been the situation that Russia and the Ukraine have had conflict? Or was there a time when they were getting along like we would hope neighbors would? Thanks, Wayne. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Tom Lee as well for uh, stimulating this this discussion. Uh, Like any group of people... Uh, that are in close contact with one another, they actually have their ups and downs over over time. Ukrainians and Russians, however, have a particular uh, close contact uh, linguistically, uh, culturally, and religiously. So whenever there is a, an issue between uh, the two, it can become extremely uh, violent, and it has uh, th- throughout uh, history. What has caused the, uh, the latest situation between Russia and Ukraine, the one that began, I guess, probably about uh, eight years ago? Thank you, Wayne. Um, I also want to thank my colleagues for being here with me today, and I want to thank Tom Lee for organizing this. Um, if, if we look back um, at this conflict, it really began in 2014. In 2013, Ukraine was set to meet and discuss signing a European agreement uh, with the European Union. The meeting was to take place in Lithuania, and the president of Ukraine went to the meeting uh, with the impression, leaving the impression to the Ukrainian people that the agreement would be signed uh, with the European Union that would lead to steps to get them to membership ultimately into the European Union. Uh, Before the the document was signed, there was discussions with Moscow and the president decided not to sign uh, the European agreement. Uh, He went back to Kiev and uh, the people took to the streets because they wanted uh, to have a closer union with, with the Europeans. Um, this led to more demonstrations that changed um, in, in that with that winter, actually, and uh, the the um, the demands to become part of the European Union suddenly shifted towards ousting the president, and the, the president of Ukraine was ousted at that point. He f- he fled to Moscow, and this revolution of dignity brought in a new administration, and um, this this resistance at the time of where Ukraine uh, should be. Should it, should it have closer relations to Moscow or should it have closer relations to EU is really pronounced at that period. But the Europeans had been courting Ukraine at that time. Uh, Ukrainian presidents uh, over time have discussed becoming uh, closer to NATO, have been partnership, been involved in partnership for peace, and also wanted to take steps towards uh, becoming a member of NATO. Putin sees this as a zero-sum game and does not want the, the Ukrainians to be part of the European Union or to be a member of NATO. Um, he sees this as a situation where Ukraine is either with Russia or with the West. And uh, that was uh, what really was the impetus for the 2014 conflict, the revolution of dignity um, on Maidan Square. And uh, subsequently, we saw Crimea being taken by 
little green men, <laughs> as, as, as Putin called them, but the Russians basically were able to take Crimea, and they supported the separatists in, in the eastern part of, of Ukraine at that point. So this is basically a, a situation of you can't be friends with them and be friends with us at the same time. Correct. From the Russian perspective, that is that is how it's seen by the by the Russian administration. Yes. From okay. From the Western perspective, of course, Ukraine is seen as a sovereign state, a sovereign country that has the right to choose uh, what kind of foreign policy it wants to pursue. It has been a sovereign state for the last over thirty years, actually, since the Soviet Union collapsed in December of nineteen ninety one. Dr. Fritz, how does the rest of the world look at this conflict? What are the what are the stakes involved for everybody else? In, that's a good question, Wayne. In in one respect, I, I think at least the perspective from Germany, uh, from Central Europe, is that this is strategically kind of a, a traditional contest that's been going on way well, you know, back into the 19th century, the 18th century. From the perspective of Germany, this seems to be more of a, of a Putin is once again acting as a great power politician and playing the balance of power games so that if Putin is sincere about his statements that he wants to restore Russian great power status, if he wants to make Russia a, a major world power again, or if he simply wants to make Russia the dominant power in Europe, Putin certainly understands that, that uh, he has to incorporate Ukraine into, into greater Russia, because that's the only way that, <clears throat> excuse me, that's the only way that Russia can project its influence into Central Europe and, and then ultimately perhaps into Western Europe. So from, from that sense, the, the stakes are fairly high because it's not just necessarily a contest um, where, where Putin's acting simply because he doesn't like the Ukrainians being independent or he's afraid perhaps of the Ukrainians becoming too democratic and that might influence domestic politics in Russia, which certainly might be a factor. But from his perspective, this is, as Dr. Crumley said, a zero-sum game because if Ukraine migrates to the West and enters the European Union and falls within the Western orbit, then Russia cannot, by definition, then be a great power. So from his perspective, it has to be an all-or-nothing game. If he wants to make Russia a great power again, then he has to figure out some way to, um, to bring Ukraine under his influence. We hear a lot uh, about uh, Putin labeling the Ukrainians as neo-Nazis. This obviously goes back to World War II when there was uh, some, some kind of conflict between the, the Soviet Union and the Ukrainians in, in response to the German invasion of Russia. Is, is that still a very sore point in Russia today? Uh, y yes, it is a very sore point. Uh, it's, it's also a sore point in Ukraine among some people. Uh, after the collapse of the uh, Russian Empire, Ukraine attempted I independence. The independence movement lasted for a very short time, over a period of uh, uh, one or two years. Two people's republics uh, were established, and uh, they, they couldn't survive. The First World War and the collapse of the um, uh, Russian Empire, the Civil War, uh, uh, Poles taking over uh, Kiev, uh, whites coming through the area, white at a, that is pro-imperial uh, uh, forces fighting the communists, and then uh, communists themselves. This left a very fraught 
legacy. When the Soviet Union was able to control Ukraine uh, to its satisfaction and created a, a federation, um, uh, these forces were suppressed. The nationalists really wanted to wrest themselves away uh, from the Russians. Uh, they had earlier supported uh, the Tsarist government for uh, reasons of religion and language and, and that common culture that I mentioned before. But now nationalism dis, uh, defined Ukraine as separate uh, f uh, from Russia. Then come the, uh, the German invasion, and uh, even before that, uh, Ukrainians were, were being courted by the Germans. Uh, uh, with the invasion, many Ukrainians welcomed uh, the Germans. The Ukrainians had undergone what they called the Holodomor, death by starvation, the collectivization that Stalin imposed. And uh, so there was a, an upswell of support for any, anybody who was opposed to Russian domination. And uh, this continues. Uh, that uh, battalion in uh, the Azov-Stal um, uh, metallurgical works has sympathetic ties in this, uh, in, in this direction. So, yes, that's a real big issue. It's a big issue in Russia. You can, you can raise a lot of people um, uh, against Ukraine by uh, mentioning this. Uh, however, a, a lot of this is in the past that people are trying to apply to the future. So it's as if you would continue to blame uh, the Russians because they were Soviets for the oppression that they created uh, in Ukraine. So this gets to be, I can't find a better word for it, rather messy. Yeah. You're listening to a live forum on Ukraine on WETS-FM at HD1. I'm Wayne Winkler, and I'm joined today by Dr. Henry Ankevich and Dr. Stephen Fritz from the Department of History at ETSU and Dr. Michelle Crumley from the Department of Political Science. Prior to the Russian invasion back in February, there was uh, a lot of, I guess you could call it, threats of sanctions against, uh, against Putin and the Russian government, which didn't seem to affect his behavior at all. It would seem that it's much more important for, uh, for Russia to, to control Ukraine than to worry about what everybody else in the world thinks. Um, why is it that uh, Russia was undeterred by, by the threat of sanctions? But, yeah, uh, another good question, Wayne. I, I think um, part of it, I, th I think it was an important issue for Putin, so he, he was determined to, to take the gamble. Uh, to, a, to a large extent, I think he, it was a calculated gamble on, on, on Putin's part. I, I think he, he calculated that um, over the last eight years he has um, reorganized the Russian economy in an effort to make it you know, sanctions-proof. He uh, famously stashed a bunch of money away and, and um, actually had fairly rigorous control of the budgets in Russia so that they could develop, uh, develop a surplus, a financial surplus. And he uh, cultivated relations with um, China, obviously. 
but there was also the fact, I think there was, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you would call it arrogance or hubris, it might well be that of, um, of a resource-rich nation. Uh, Putin was, I think, fairly well convinced that since uh, Western Europe was completely dependent, or, or in, not completely dependent, but heavily dependent upon Russian oil and natural gas, that if push came to shove, I think he doubted very seriously that the, that the Western Europeans would actually go through with serious sanctions. So it might be the United States tried to impose some sanctions, but I think Putin thought that he had insulated himself fairly well against the economic burden of sanctions because he had established a financial reserve and he had established the importance of Russian energy for Western Europe, and he had made connections to China. What's What's been amazing is every one of his calculations has gone wrong. Uh, the Chinese haven't evidently rushed in to help him. Uh, deliveries of Russian oil to China haven't increased at all. To India, they've increased, but not to China. And just recently, I read that Chinese high-tech is actually pulling back from Russia for fear of the sanctions. Western Europe, rather than uh, react abjectly, Western Europe was re-energized and, and uh, reunited uh, by Putin's actions. So they're acting by the end of the year to uh, wean themselves away from Russian oil. And the American sanctions were far more uh, extensive than anything I think that Putin envisioned would happen. So I think he took a calculated gamble based on those three things, and, and he bet wrong in every one of them. What is victory to someone like Putin? What would be his ultimate goal? What would make him feel that I've accomplished what I wanted to accomplish here? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> um, I guess, I guess I'm is, asking what, yeah. what would victory look like? That's to a great Vladimir question. Putin? That that is a great question. I I think um, you know initially. When uh, this all began on February 24th, that victory was simply going to be ousting President Zhirinovsky Zier, uh, and Zhirinovsky. Uh, I apologize, uh, Zelensky, <laughs> uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. I apologize, um, and he did not. Of course, he did not. He did not leave the position. He did not go as presidents were ousted in 2005 from Ukraine, and also in 2014. Um, first with the Orange Revolution, and then with the Revolution of Dignity. Um, in both of those instances in Ukraine, the president fled um, under pressure. And in this this instance, um, President Zelensky stood up to to the threat, and even when offered uh, assistance to leave the country. He famously made the statement that he needs arms and not a ride. Um, he has uh, shown great leadership. I want to mention that. Um, Zelensky has uh, really become a clarion call for all um, who want to resist uh, Russia in Ukraine. And he's become really a, a internationally known figure and, and really historical figure. As far as Putin, after, after um, it appeared that the government was not going to be overthrown easily and quickly, uh, it appeared that he was uh, setting his eyes on taking territories in eastern Ukraine and along the Black Sea. Uh, we would expect probably that he would want to connect, uh, have a land connection uh, all the way to Moldova. Uh, there are troops in Moldova, Russian troops that have been there uh, since the 90s in the Transnistria area. 
And uh, it's possible that he would want to connect that landmass along the, the Black Sea and up through uh, eastern Ukraine and then leave a smaller state of, of Ukraine that's a rump uh, landlocked state. Uh, that could be victory, um, but it's, it's, it's difficult to tell at this point because I think um, there's been more resistance um, and a stronger pushback from the Ukrainians, a stronger fight than, than even Putin was expecting. So I think we're at the beginning stages of, of this conflict, and um, it's, it's unclear what victory might look like. Can, can I follow up? Sure. I think Dr. Crumley has mentioned a very important thing here. And, and if, you, if, you, if you look at it, again, from kind of the go back a few months <clears throat> when um, Putin and, and President Xi of China made their statement and uh, of solidarity and, and alliance and so forth, you had the sense that what they really meant was that they were going to challenge the existing order, diplomatic and, and economic political order. And, and in that sense, victory would have, if, if victory had come easily in Ukraine, victory would have been the first first step in, in, in um, perhaps undermining the existing the existing order, and that was certainly their stated goal. But as Dr. Crumley said, now then it seems to evolve into I think Putin would probably be happy with taking eastern Ukraine, southern Ukraine. But what what, what struck me in, in his speech yesterday on, on Victory Day was that Putin seems to be even kind of perhaps rec recognizing that he may not even be able to attain that because now he's, rather than talk about the military aspect, rather than talk about liberating Ukrainians and the like, now he's, he seems like he's just simply trying to justify the war to Russians, that, that this was a preventive war, it was forced on Russia because of Ukrainian aggression or Western aggression. We're still fighting the Nazis. If, if you listen to some of this, you, you think it's like 1944. And, and, and um, as an historian of Nazi Germany, it, it's fascinating to me how he's invoking the Nazis now and, and trying to actively um, engage Russians as if they, they were uh, actively fighting the real Nazis. Uh, so the question of what victory looks like to Putin seems to me to have become very, very complicated now because he's, he seems to be realizing he may not even be able to get the minimal goal, which would have been control of, of, um, of the Black Sea coast and, and eastern and southern Ukraine. Is his message to the Russian people, is Putin's message to the Russian people getting through to them? He's, he's kind of bringing back the old idea of defending against invasion from the West, which the Russians have dealt with for, for the past century. Is this unifying the Russians behind his position, or, or are they not getting a lot of information about what's really happening? I, I think the, the, the Russians are getting his message. I think they're uh, responding to it. Um, uh, polls uh, show that they um, a, a lot of Russians support what Putin is doing. Uh, uh, however, it's difficult to gauge how deep uh, these sentiments go. Uh, you know, if your country is in danger, well, you'll you'll think that maybe you ought to support it, but they don't get a lot of information that is the kind of information that we have. So they have uh, what the government is able to convince them that 
uh, they have to stand up for their country. And if you're patriotic, you must stand up for it. If you criticize, uh, you, 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 are a tra- you are a traitor. On the other hand, uh, has, this, has this invasion kind of unified the Ukrainian people uh, there, there were separatists who you know, wanted to reunify with Russia. Has that kind of, has the invasion kind of welded the Ukrainians together, you know, to defend the home country? I think that's an excellent question. Um, you know, sometimes it seems like Putin is looking through the lens of ethnic or ethno-nationalism, and Ukraine has shown um, a, a, a civic nationalism that has arisen since. 2014, uh, I think the expectation from Putin was that the, the ethnic Russians and the Russian speakers in the eastern part of, of Ukraine would support the invasion. And instead, uh, they have, uh, where we've seen through uh, reports, anecdotal evidence, um, and, and refugees fleeing, that the Russian speakers actually support the uh, Ukrainian government. Uh, of course, there is the separatist region where there may be different sentiments, but in places like Kharkiv, uh, there is resistance to the Russians coming in. They don't see them as liberators. And uh, like I said, there's been this new uh, reborn, eth- eth- uh, I'm sorry, not ethno, but civic nationalism, the sense of what does it mean to be Ukrainian? Uh, to be Ukrainian means to uh, support the, the uh, free and fair elections that take place in the country and to support, um, while you know, it's not perfect. Ukrainians will say it's not perfect, but it's our government. And we have self-determination. We have representative government. We have um, some rule of law. It may, again, it may be imperfect, but it's better than a system that is authoritarian, which is what the Russians are offering. We have seen a big reaction in the world community about uh, this invasion. Has there been anything that's really of concern to to Putin and to the Russian people uh, in terms of the reaction from other countries, the sanctions and so forth. Again, I'll I'll jump in on this as as an historian of Germany. I think the biggest surprise to Putin clearly is the German reaction because uh, over the last 30 years, um, German foreign policy towards Russia especially has been based on what the Germans called Wandel durch Handel, which is a transformation change through trade. So the whole German basis of their foreign policy to Russia was that by engaging in trade with Russia, by engaging in purchasing, essentially the Germans deliberately, purposely made themselves dependent upon Russian oil, natural gas, on the assumption that this would demonstrate to Russia that there was no aggressive intention on the part of the West. And this this action, this these trade connections would modify Russians' uh, behavior. Russia would not be aggressive. The Russians would see that, that, that Germany and the European Union was wanting to, to uh, more or less work towards integration of Europe and that there would be this uh, significant fundamental transformation. The Germans over the last couple decades, were, in fact, were talking about um, and, and, and um, praising the fact that for the first time in their modern history, uh, there were no enemies. Germany had no enemies. This is the country in the middle of Europe that historically was surrounded by enemies, and Germans were celebrating the new era. Um, of prosperity and peace in which they have no enemies. 
so the, 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 the Russian invasion of Ukraine was a, a complete shock to Berlin. And, and what's, what's astounding as an historian of Germany is how rapidly the Germans have transformed their attitude. All of the, all of the major proponents of the um, tr- change through trade policy have now been discredited in Germany. And increasingly, that includes former Chancellor Merkel, who was um, at the height of popularity. When she left office, she still was uh, uh, considered positively by 70 percent of the population. Her reputation has sunk um, drastically over the last couple of months, as uh, what did the, the, the now the present president of Germany, who was closely identified with this policy. The Germans have now suddenly uh, increased their defense budget. Uh, the Germans are uh, working assiduously to, to cut off all their sale, their, their their purchases of oil and natural gas from Russia. Um, it's just it's been extraordinary turnaround in in Germany and the European Union, NATO. Uh, again, all of these areas where. I'm sure Putin never anticipated anything like this, and and, and I, I have a suspicion that Putin uh, counted on Germany to be his his buffer, that that the Germans would would oppose any significant, really biting sanctions on him, and that's that's been a, a an enormous transformation. I concur, and if I could add to this, um, Russians have a saying: "The tallest blade of grass gets the scythe." And if we think about that in, in terms of power structures, uh, Russia's, of course, increased its, its relative power uh, with development of new weapons, but it was also counting on uh, a, a fractured Western response. And it has spent uh, much capital on uh, supporting populist nationalist parties in Europe it, uh, Russia was actively involved in disinformation campaigns uh, during the Brexit uh, discussions. Um, it has been involved in U.S. politics, trying to um, encourage divisions within this country. And I think there was a miscalculation here that the West would be not united in a response um, when the invasion came. And, and Putin has talked about uh, NATO being a, a concern or a threat to Russia, and he, he has been adamant about not allowing Ukraine or Georgia, who have ex- both expressed a desire to become NATO members. He is uh, he does not want NATO expansion, and in fact, what this has done is encouraged other states to pursue membership in NATO. So what we're seeing is Finland and Sweden uh, both taking the steps to become members of NATO. And there's a very good chance that they could have full membership by the fall of this year. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because our president a few years ago wanted to see the United States out of NATO, but it seems like NATO has kind of become a lot more relevant in the last few months. That's correct, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Certainly it has. There's, there's no doubt about that, that uh, Macron a couple of years ago, the French president uh, ridiculed NATO as being brain dead but it's like there is Putin provided a brain transplant for <laughs> yeah. NATO now that mm-hmm. there, there is a purpose again. Um, and again, it, it was a, in tennis, you would call talk about an unforced error. This was an unforced error on Putin's part. He didn't have to do this. Um, things were, in fact, going his way, uh, at least on the surface. And so you tend to wonder why he he did this now. Uh, Certainly, he miscalculated, but uh, I have the I have a sense that there must have been something more 
giving him a sense of urgency uh, than um, than simply um, this seemed like the right time. There, there, there seemed, I mean, and I, I'm not I'm not an expert certainly on this, but but I have that I have this sense that there must be something else that's that's providing this this urgency for him. And I'll turn it over into my colleagues and let them <laughs> have at it. Well, I, I was just going to go in a slightly different direction. I, I, I agree with what you are saying about the transformation of Ukraine. It, the, the, this kind of religious, ethnic feeling that was cohesive in the 18th and early 19th century transformed into a more modern sense of nationality, which excluded other people. So there were groups that now didn't get along. And, and for the first time, uh, the Ukrainians started separating themselves from the Russians, uh, which did not go over very well, either in Tsarist times or in, in, in Soviet times. Uh, the people who took advantage of the uh, German invasion uh, during the Second World War and took up all of these symbols of the uh, Nazis uh, did uh, some horrific things, particularly to people not of their ethnic group, uh, Jews, um, Poles, other, uh, uh, other people. But what has happened in Ukraine uh, since then is, uh, you know, people make a big point that Zelensky is of Jewish background. Well, that is spectacular, uh, probably, in the Ukrainian, Russian, or, or Eastern European uh, context. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be a real big deal in Ukraine. And uh, I think this says something to the path along which uh, the Ukrainians have trod to get where they are and explains something about the solidarity they have. And just something about um, NATO uh, in, in this connection. Uh, it, it seems that we in America uh, uh, realize what a, what a fiasco uh, our and NATO's participation in Afghanistan was. Um, a military commander of uh, American forces in uh, Europe has at least brought up the idea that a lot of these participants from Eastern European countries, uh, including uh, Ukrainians, um, got exposed to modern military techniques. And they it, it was a bumpy road, but they've got through them, and somehow this has made the Ukrainian military more cohesive uh, than the, uh, the, the Russians whom they are um, uh, fighting. In particular, and I'm not a military historian, I'll leave this to my uh, colleague, uh, Dr. Fritz, but um, it seems to be a buildup of non-commissioned officers that um, helped uh, propel uh, units in war. And somehow the uh, Russian forces lack this. That kind of ties in with the question I had. Why are the Russians doing so poorly? Or are, or they, are they doing what they intended to do? Or are they? it seems to me like they're not 
No, they're, they're having a lot of success. They're, they're not doing what Putin had intended. Putin, I think, again, we keep the theme we have here is Putin surprised by a lot of things, and and you wonder who he was listening to in his inner circle, who was telling telling him things, and whether they were telling him the truth. But certainly, over the last ten years, Russians have spent a lot to modernize their military. But it would seem that most of their money went on on fancy weapons, hypersonic missiles, and things like that. Whereas Dr. Ankevich mentioned, the Ukrainians were getting on-the-job experience, not only perhaps in Afghanistan, but in eastern Ukraine, fighting the Russians. And the Ukrainians uh, certainly have developed, had developed techniques of uh, improvised warfare, of, of, you might say, urban warfare, of asymmetrical warfare. So the initial Russian invasion, which was kind of um, uh, aimed, aiming at a quick blow against Kiev and Kharkiv and places like that, inver- inadvertently, I think, played into Ukrainian strengths because they had defensive weapons, they had effective um, handheld individually controlled weapons systems that... Um, Individuals could go out and destroy tanks. They could destroy helicopters. They could destroy fighter planes. We just heard on the NPR news that the the skies over Ukraine are still being contested because the Ukrainians have proved very effective at using their their um, their, their missiles, their Stinger missiles, and other things. And 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 I was reading the other day they they've hooked them up to Fiat pickup trucks, and so they drive around, which is. That, that's exactly what was taking place in Iraq and Afghanistan and other places. So they, they've learned very effectively how to use these weapons. So there was a big miscalculation there. The Russian logistical system was not particularly good. The Russian uh, low-level command was not particularly good. What surprised me is everybody assumed that when Putin switched to the to uh, southern and eastern Ukraine, which is more suited for open warfare, tank warfare, things like that. I think there, again, there was an expectation that the Russians would just overwhelm the Ukrainians with their sheer firepower. Uh, but once again, that hasn't happened. And it, it showed, uh, it's shown the effectiveness, first of all, of the, the cohesive Ukrainian response. And secondly, I think it's shown the effectiveness of, of defensive weaponry. Um, you have to have a very good plan now because anti-tank, anti-aircraft missiles, handheld weapons are so effective now that um, any Russian airplane venturing out is, 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 is at risk of being shot down. Russian tanks, the Ukrainians have learned how to deal with Russian tanks and then to, um, to blast them apart in defensive warfare. And... Um, the West is supplying them with effective weapons. Um, so that, I, I think, has uh, completely turned on its head all of the Russian military calculations. And now it appears to me that you have a kind of dispirited Russian force um, which doesn't really have much enthusiasm for fighting um, against a Ukrainian outfit, Ukrainian uh, fighters, who I think increasingly are believing they can win, which is which is an interesting sort of inversion of expectations. We have a question from a former ETSU student, Amy Howard of Johnson City, who says, what is the likelihood that Putin will resort to nuclear weapons, and what might that look like? It won't look very good if he does, <laughs> so I'll leave it at there. <laughs> I don't expect that... Um 
although I, you know, I, that could be my own misunderstanding. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, what are his goals? Are they to take territory, to, uh, to control the gas reserves which are in Ukraine? Uh, that's a, actually, Ukraine has the third largest gas reserves, uh, shale gas reserves in all of Europe. Uh, so there are resources to be gained if, uh, if he finds a, a resistant Ukrainian population no longer there. And, uh, and, and, of course, that's being done through pressure for people to flee for their lives. And they're, they're not only going to Europe, but uh, Russians are offering for them to come to uh, Russia, even against their will. Human Rights Watch just had a report that Ukrainians uh, who are little moneyed, um, have no resources and have been left behind, are being taken um, by the thousands into Russia. And they are stretching from places like Magadan, um, Kamchatka, the far uh, eastern part of the country, all the way through the central part. So it would be very difficult for these people um, who have been offered refuge by Russia from the fighting that's taking place in their villages. Uh, it's going to be very difficult for them to get back to Ukraine. They have no money. Uh, they have no documents, and they're being taken deep into Russia. Uh, and like I said, Human Rights Watch is, is documenting that. So if the, <clears throat> the land is uncontested, there's really no need to use nuclear weapons. Uh, Russia gains territory, <clears throat> gains resources, um, and can build its, itself as a, as a great power. Yeah, I, th I think that's, um, again, I think Dr. Krelmy raises a, a, good, a good issue here, and, it, and the and the question was a very good question, and, and it raises the larger questions or questions, I, I suppose, is what is worse, a, a Putin victory or a Putin defeat? Mm -hmm. And if you if you think what's the likelihood of using a Putin using nuclear weapons, as Dr. Crumley sketched out, rationally in his own self-interest, there would be no use to, to use nuclear weapons because that would undermine all of his all of his goals for for post victory Ukraine the only what the only scenario I can possibly envision uh, Putin perhaps thinking of using tactical nuclear weapons might be in a situation where where his some of his military forces just decide to stop fighting and and they decide it's not worth it anymore because they're making so little progress in Ukraine if Putin is faced with the prospect of absolute defeat and then, then I could envision him using tactical nuclear weapons, and I want to differentiate not not strategic nuclear weapons, but tactical battlefield nuclear weapons, I could I could envision him using those if it looked as if he might, his military forces might actually lose. But in the same, saying that, um, I would also anticipate that if it looked as if there was a scenario in which the Ukrainians might actually win, I would expect the West to restrain the Ukrainians. I mean, you have a similar scenario back in 1973 with um, with the um, Yom Kippur War, where, where the Israelis <clears throat> launched their their counterattack against the Egyptians and Syrians, and and were on the verge of humiliating both both the Egyptians and the Syrians by by made, were, they had it within their power to seize their their capital cities, and at that point, the United States restrained Israel because of the fear that an absolute defeat like that might cause uh, completely un unanticipated consequences. So I would anticipate if it looked as if Ukraine might actually win or Russia might actually lose, that there would be intervention of the West to, to try to find some sort of face-saving way out for Putin. 
uh, one uh, face-saving device was the use of the term non-escalatory tactical nuclear weapon strike. Right. And how this can be, I don't know. Yeah. But, uh, yes, why use it on Ukraine unless it's a really dire circumstance, like Dr. Fritz says, uh, you'd poison uh, everything that's around there that would be a benefit uh, to Russia, as Dr. Crumley says. Um, I could see, uh, why not drop it on Poland? You know, uh, after all, the ambassador just got humiliated uh, with red paint mm -hmm. uh, thrown on him during this uh, uh, march of the... Uh, 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 the, the soldiers who di died in the war in respect of those soldiers. I, I'm being a little facetious here, but uh, uh, s certainly there's a w way to use these weapons and weasel yourself out of blame for it. it if it'll work, I don't know. But it's, it, it's possible. Clearly, the other countries uh, would do, as Dr. Fritz said, would, would try to find some way to make it not so bad if Putin were losing to kind of give him a way to save face. But could this get out of hand? Could this be the beginning of World War III? Because we've seen in the 20th century incidents that didn't seem like would trigger uh, such a big conflict wound up doing that. Uh, things get out of hand and kind of snowball. Uh, is that a possibility here? Yeah, I, I'd, I'd mentioned earlier about them going back in, in the first part of the year when China and Russia came to their agreement, and, and, and it seemed to me that what they were, well, that didn't have to be seemed to me, what they were saying is that very specifically is they were going to challenge the American-led world order, and they wanted to replace it. And that immediately, as an historian of World War I as well, that immediately got me to thinking of Germany in World War I. If you, if you use the comparison of Germany was the challenger to the world order, existing liberal democratic world order in both World War I and World War II. And, of course, uh, as you mentioned, Wayne, it did get out of hand, and, and we had the two worst, worst wars in, in human history. What, what strikes me as different now is that in in 1914 and in 1939, it was the most powerful and dynamic of the, of the um, challengers which challenged the existing um, world order, Germany. It wasn't Italy and it wasn't uh, Japan, Japan indirectly, but it was Germany which was the most formidable challenge and that provoked the response. In this case, the most formidable challenger, as almost everybody acknowledges, is not Russia but China. Uh, and I hate to use the analogy, but Russia is regarded more as the Italy of the of the of the um, of the challengers. China is the real wild card here, and that's what I think people have been looking towards China. And in, 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 in answer to your question, no, I don't think it's going to escalate into a world war because China has reacted again differently, I think, than people expected China to react. They've uh, taken, again, if, if Putin's forces had won rapidly, it might be a different situation. But uh, the Chinese, I think, have probably taken a sober look at 
um, the ineffectual challenge of Russia to the world order, the, the uh, rather effective Western response, um, the difficulties the Russians would have are, are multiplied enormously in an in a amphibious invasion across the Taiwan Strait. So everything that looks so possible at the first of the year doesn't seem so possible now. And China, I think, facing ec an economic slowdown anyway because of the pandemic and other uh, measures that President Xi has imposed on China. Uh, I don't think um, I don't think the Chinese are so willing to go forward with the challenge now. And without a Chinese challenge, the Russian challenge isn't all that terribly significant. What do you think is the most uh, significant element of this? Ukraine situation that the pundits and the media seem to have overlooked in their effort to explain things? Well, that it could happen at, at all. I think most uh, people uh, who were commenting uh, were saying that perhaps this is a buildup of troops that is meant to intimidate, but it wouldn't uh, come to this pass. And on the other hand, once an invasion was mounted, that it proceeded so incompetently. Yeah, I, th I think one of the one of the key things that has been overlooked, and Dr. Crumley alluded to it earlier, and a lot of the pundits have acted from the assumption, <clears throat> excuse me, have acted from the assumption that nationalism was dead in the in the post Cold War world, and we would we would be uh, heading directly into a, a, an integrated globalist world in which nationalism was passe now and was largely irrelevant. And in that sense, I think the pundits completely missed how important nationalism was, not only Russian nationalism to Putin and Russian national pride, but also then Ukrainian nationalism, whether it's civic nationalism or ethno-nationalism. So, I, I would think that the, the thing that they've overlooked the most is the return of nationalism. I, I have one one more comment. I, the, the return of imperialism. That's right. Good yeah. point. Good point. Uh, we've, we thought this was gone, but but maybe we can call it a different name, but it's it's still active. Right. Yeah. And I will add, uh, I was just uh, reading a report about... Um, a, a man named Dugan, who is considered the brain for, for Putin, and um, he alluded to the idea that uh, there will be a Slavic revivalism, and he's looking towards the Balkans. Uh, so there's definitely concern about uh, the rise of, of nationalist sentiments in places where we saw ethnic, ethnic conflict in the 1990s, um, in particular with the, uh, the, the leader of the Bosnian Serbs has been talking about uh, gaining control over the judiciary, the intelligence, and police forces there. And, and while it is um, directed ethnically now, it is all part of uh, 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 Bosnia that is together ethnically, but uh, he wants to separate uh, that control so that the Bosnian Serbs could have control of that. And that's actually supported by Putin. So um, I think we, we can look beyond Ukraine to some extent and see where Russia has been stirring up and encouraging nationalism in other places, too. And, and you know, the, the fact that there are real concerns about threats to stability in other parts of the world, that Russia is um, Russia has the possibility of, of stir, stirring up that Slavic revivalism, that ethnic sentiment. Mm -hmm. 
Well, in the uh, minute or so that we have left, does anybody care to make any predictions about how this is going to work out? I, I originally was using the framework of the, the Russo-Finnish War in 1939-1940 as my framework, where after a, <clears throat> a valiant defense early on, then the, the larger, much stronger power would overwhelm the smaller power. But given the effectiveness of the Ukrainian defense, I'm beginning to think that this might be more like the Spanish Civil War of 1936 to 39, where it, it just kind of drags on until finally one side or the other just just eventually can't go on or, or is not willing to go on. That's not very optimistic, I know. So. <laughs> I, I'd suggest uh, the Japanese involvement in Manchuria from 1931 on. Uh, they thought that they could control the area and they got sucked in more and more and more. Well, I want to thank you for being with us today. Uh, we've, we could go on a long time with, the, with this, but I want to thank Dr. Henry Ankevich, uh, Dr. Stephen Fritz, and Dr. Michelle Crumley for being with us today. You're listening to WETS HD1 and WETS-FM, Johnson City, Tennessee.